Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Well, good afternoon. This is Will and Matthew, and we're discussing episode six, Polls and Framing. 60% of the time, 100% agrees. That's correct. And a lot of times you'll just find stats and stories and things that are aimed at you telling you that somebody is right. But are they actually right? And are they trying to send you for a ride? To open us up, we have our opening problem. 80% of stats are made up on spot, goes the joke. Policies are argued for, by, subjective social polls like happiness. Conservatives pounce, Democrats lie. Spin, twist, propaganda, and fake news are all common words slung about. Bringing up black-on-black statistics is considered not relevant, while the same group will reverse course on COVID numbers. There are thousands of articles from dozens of sites all blurring headlines and truth is here at your face. Hundreds of analysts' analytics proclaiming their policy is perfect. Keeping up with all of it can be confusing and frustrating. And we want to simplify this so then we can tell the rhetoric and the spin from the facts. And the question of the show today is, how can we lie while telling the truth? And how can we quickly discern bias? That's right. And I, I think the first thing, obviously, to bring up that's the easiest one is just asking the question, what are polls and surveys for? Because a lot of times what you'll hear is somebody will say, oh, there's a poll, 61% of Americans agree, and 38% this, and then they, they break it down. They'll say words like plurality or majority, or they'll say, you know, um, significant minority, which is, you know, seems like an oxymoron. So what exactly are polls for? So Those are really big words. I mean, <laughs> what is anybody supposed to do with all those things? Right. And, and really what they're supposed to do, it, this is all you need to hear. When you hear poll, what you need to hear is snapshot. It's like a picture. Right? It takes a picture of your current feelings and emotions, right? So you may today have an opinion on something and then later on down the road it might change. I mean, you can just think of what happened after George Floyd, right? There are a lot of people who changed their opinion because of that. And that's a single event. But if you polled that same person two weeks apart, they would give a different answer. So a poll by itself is not conclusive, not even just two weeks, every single day. Every single you'll day. You'll see polls and approval numbers go up and down all around. Right. So every poll is a data point. And then what we try to do is put them all together so you can see the trend lines. That's the goal of these polls. That's why you'll see the election polls are done week by week. So this week they feel this, then they feel this. So you can kind of average that out and go, here's kind of where their support is. It's around here, depending on this or that. And then you can kind of also go, what events happened in this week that didn't happen in this week? Was this a bad week, good week? And you can learn from the data points. Or in the case of the presidential elections, you're just waiting for that October surprise, that right. thing that's going to just blow up your polls and make all of the previous polls not matter ever again. Exactly. And, and polls... We really want them to be something that you listen to because you want to hear what are people thinking. But remember, it's one snapshot. You wouldn't see a photo on somebody's Facebook and go, that's their whole life, one photo. You would look through all their photos to determine, oh, you know, what's going on with them? What do they like? What are their feelings? You would never just say, well, I saw one photo in Disney. Clearly, the only thing they like is Disney. They just, they live in Disney. That's where they live. That's what they do. Everything there is, you would say, no, 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 they like Disney. They like to go to national parks, you, you would know more about them because you would learn more data points. 
So one pole is not conclusive. And honestly, you can even have certain strings of poles that are not correct, which we'll show some examples later. But the first thing about polls is they require a demographic you want to survey, right? So you want to look out for that. What are they actually surveying, right? Because maybe it's registered voters, likely voters. Sometimes they even poll non-voters. That doesn't seem to make sense. Right. Well, the thing is, non-voters are people that may end up voting. Because sometimes you get first-time voters, right? Uh, that was a big thing for Donald Trump in 2016, right? Was a first-time voter. And people were not ready for that. And so you can also gauge the mood of people who are non-political. So... Right, because politics tends to have left, right, and middle. But if you have non-voters, those non-voters can give you how are people generally feeling that aren't engaged in politics, and that can sometimes help you come up with policies or words or points of view to get those people to vote for you. So essentially, you're able to query the non-voters to find out if they've reached a certain point where they're going to actually influence the election or whatever they're influencing. Correct. Right. Because again, capturing more votes. In some of these states, I, I believe we just had somebody win by six votes in a House race. So if somebody wins by six votes, actually, no, it was 12 votes. I'm sorry, 12 votes. But Yeah, I think I heard of that one. Yes. I'm pretty sure the guy, didn't he make the call that he wasn't going to win and they came back and they're like, oops, you won? Yep, yep, that one happened as well. All it would take is 10 non-voters going, you know what, this guy is saying the things I like to say I'm going to vote from this year. That was the election. And this is why it matters to vote where you live and vote locally because it always matters locally. Right. So if you take a poll, an opinion poll, right? So th this can be outside of politics. This can just be a cultural poll. They're going to include mm -hmm. demographic questions for you because they're going to want to find out just sort of where you come from and who you are. Where were you born? How old are you? Right. On and on, female or male, non-specific. Right. And these all matter because who are they talking to matter. Right? Because if you're going to compare this to another poll, if you compare likely voters versus non-voters in two different polls, you're actually surveying two different groups of people. So you can yell at each other over, my poll says this, your poll says that, and you're actually talking about two different groups of people. You could both be right. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. So polls and surveys are going to then have a methodology. They're going to collect the data in a certain way. So some are... They'll use in-person phone calls. Those are starting to go by the wayside because uh, how many people are answering telemarketers? Because they're not. And a lot of people, when you call well, them up. None. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it turns out what they've discovered is a lot of times the people answering these polls, when they do the in-person, they're the people who have really strong opinions. So you're introducing a bias of only people with really strong opinions are answering. So you're going to get these polarized polls and you're going to get these polarized surveys that don't actually represent the general population. Yeah, that's fair. I actually did one of those Facebook polls where they were polling people based off how they felt a few months before the election, a month before the election, and a few weeks after the election. And I definitely got the sense that while they were trying to get some type of variance between how do you feel about this specific person or policy between zero and a hundred, I got the sense that most people would answer these questions with a zero or a hundred. Do you like Donald Trump? Do you hate Donald Trump? Do you like Biden? Do you hate Biden? And even though they never use those words, you can just feel people just pooling all the way to the left, all the way to the right. right. And the same thing happens where they'd ask a question like, 
how do you feel about people who would vote for such and such candidate? And then you feel yourself pulling to the left, pulling to the right. And you think to yourself, like, why do I even feel this way? Why am I even answering this question this way? And then like, hopefully you have that moment where you realize like, I don't actually feel this way about all those people. And it just like slides into the middle, but not everybody thinks like that. And then you just end up with a bunch of broken people. And here we are in 2021. Yeah, how many people are saying I'm 31% confident? A lot, you know, you know, a lot of those people are saying either zero or a hundred. You know, you know, Trump 2020. He's you know, God Emperor Trump, and the other people are saying, you know, I hope the next emperor murders Donald Trump. Right? That's the two kind of responses you're going to get because the people who are going to sit down and take the time in general are probably going to have really strong feelings, whereas a lot of people who are just on Facebook are going to go, eh, click, and then they're done, or they just x out of it. I mean, how many times have you started a poll and then you? Go, oh, how many questions? Never mind. You click out. <laughs> yeah, you realize it's like 15 minutes long and you're like, my DoorDash order is ready to go right now. <laughs> right. And so that's why responses are key. And even non-responses can be a form of bias, right? Too many people who don't respond to something can introduce bias into your survey. So who and what are responding? They really matter greatly. And there's a very silly example, but real that you can think about when you're talking about responses. So 538, Nate Silver's group, they're the big, famous polling group. During an election cycle, you'll see Nate Silver on your TV like 10 to 15 times a week. He's just, he's the guy on a lot of these networks. I feel like you just assume that people are watching TV. Continue. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of people cutting the cord. But 538 is the big polling place. So they polled Americans and they asked about their steak preference, right? How do you like your steak cooked? And a plurality... 38%, so meaning that was the largest group, but they're not the majority, said they preferred medium rare. That's just not 38% people. That's just actually right. If you talk to anyone who actually makes steak as an actual chef, that is what you make. Then you find out those people that are like, it's only good when it's well done. You need to <laughs> take those people and have an intervention. You don't have to like throw them out of your life. You just need to help them come around to the right side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is where you can practice your debating skills, but rather you shouldn't just tell them, you should show them and make them medium rare and make them very like a well done and then just put them side by side and be like, taste this and don't look at it. That should help your case. Continue. Blue steak conversations. We want you to join our side unless you're a well done steak person. Then you're out. Then you're just, that's it. Please, please delete us from your... <laughs> Just unsubscribe immediately. We don't need your kind here. No. But the second was medium at 31%. And so the majority of people across all of the categories were saying medium rare, medium to rare. That was the majority of people. It's like 70%. 70% is there. However, what happened is, is they went and talked to Longhorn Steakhouse, who has like 500 locations across America. And they had a whole year of data on what people were ordering their steak as. Impressive. So it turns out that medium was number one at 37.5%, which is a whole six and a half percent increase. Okay. First, I have to say that when you go to a steakhouse, you almost always get suggested, would you like medium? As if like, if they look at you and they're not sure what you want or you don't have a response, they will suggest medium. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's bias built in based off of how the waiters and waitresses carry themselves. Right, but that 30, you know, 37%, 38% from before where they had responded to 538, that was all the way down to in the 20s. Wow. And the medium well had gone from being really far down 
to being equal to the number of people in percentages. They were the same group of percentages for medium well as was medium rare. So it turns out that Americans actually want their steak more thoroughly cooked, but because they know the right answer is medium rare, that people will give you the answer they think you want to hear. Also, people think that the place that they're going to might not do it right and they might do it way too Correct. rare or it might be too red. And so they feel like it's easier to make sure that they'll like what they're getting if they say medium versus if they were doing it themselves. Right. So someone may cook it themselves at home medium rare because they're like, look, I'm cooking in my home. I know the meat. I, got, I, know, I know what I'm doing. Assuming they're good at meat. Right. But then when they go out, they're like, hey, I don't want to trust some line cook down at the local chain. You know, they want... There are these variables that are being introduced. So I could show you the poll from 538 and go, see, Americans like it medium rare. That's the correct one. And then somebody could show me Longhorn Steakhouse and say, oh, no, 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 it's medium. And actually, it's generally people like it more well cooked. That's what people like. And so you have to be thinking about what could also be going on here that isn't just the question. There's other things going on besides one thing. And so the goal of these polls is to eliminate as many what else could be going on. So just to bring up another poll, I don't know what I'm referencing exactly, but there's a book that goes over you know birth rates and children and how well they come up in the world. And they've done a poll that said that children who had parents who drank like fine wine tend to do better in life. And what they ended up concluding is that it's really just that people who can afford fine wine and have like a drink once a week are more likely to care about their children's education and also have the money to support it, but not that drinking itself was making them better for their children. And so like you can create things in such a way that they look different. So we could kind of take a page from that book and say, well, maybe the people who go to these different types of restaurants actually have different preferences. Right. Maybe if maybe if they're going out to the restaurant, they aren't cooking it at home as much. So maybe it's a different group of people at your survey. One of the more famous examples of just bad polling was in 2000, a poll was conducted and it showed in one day that Al Gore had an 11 point lead. The same poll conducted two days later showed Bush ahead by seven. That's a difference in 18 points. Right. And nobody, because there was no like, you know, October surprise or like big event that like made people an 18 point swings. You have to be cheating on both your wife and your girlfriend at the same time to have an 18 point swing. Like it's really unheard of in politics to have that big a swing. So when they investigated, they ended up finding out that the volatility of the results was they were basically polling Democrat and Republican voters almost only. As opposed to? So instead of having like 50% Democrat and 50% Republicans, they were just doing like, you know, two thirds Democrat. And then, then uh, the next was two thirds. So basically it was almost all Democrats. And then the other one was almost all Republicans. So that's where you were getting the point volatility. And that's what people are saying happened in 2016 as far as Trump winning that election is that they must have surveyed far too many Democrats and not enough Republicans, independents, and non-voters. I, I actually saw a poll once that had um, a thousand respondents, 770 of them were Democrats. Whew. And then you have to at least underweight that side and then hope for the best. Right. But it now means that you are only, they only polled about, you know, 100, 230 yeah, Republicans. 
And actually, they included independents, so it wasn't even small. They were even less. Yeah, they were pulling almost nobody from the middle to right. That's awkward. Yeah, you know, and I'm looking at this poll. I'm like, I can't trust this poll. And of course, on the poll, the Democratic stuff was up, you know, ten points. What a shock! Yeah, so that's something that is very easy to access real quick because usually this data is right at the front. They usually put these right at the top, or they will include them in tables when they publish it. So it's something that. Even if you're just at your home, and you you know you've you've had your dinner, you see the poll, you can quickly look that up and sort of scroll to the relevant area, and you can kind of look at that and go, is there something here that maybe is going on? So that's something you can quickly go to. So the other thing that you really have to keep in mind, and this is something that when we started going over polls and we were learning about these things, they're first class political science, and they start teaching you about polls. The design of a poll matters so much. Mm-hmm. Like how you ask the questions. How I ask the questions. How many questions. The tone of each individual question. So all of that goes into the poll. And I actually have, pollsters are supposed to be aware of what could possibly be going on in somebody's mind and wait according to that. So do you have some examples of how this might change somebody's view on how to answer the question based off of how it's spoken? Sure. So I mean, so a super silly example to start. If I said, how many fast food restaurants have you eaten this week, right? You know, hey, have you eaten fast food in the last week? You might say once, but do you think that Panera, Starbucks, and Buffalo Wild Wings are fast food restaurants? Because they're classified as such. Yes, but that's just my opinion. Right. So they're, they're officially classified as quick service restaurants. Actually, no. I wouldn't say yes to Starbucks. I wouldn't even think of it as fast food. But Panera, I would think as like casual like there's there's a word for it that's not fast food right it's like what chipotle falls under yeah so they're called quick service restaurants is what they're officially classified at so if i asked you quick service you might go oh i ate at three but if i say fast food you might go well i did mcdonald's on tuesday i felt a little bad about it one so the phrasing changed my entire response Mm -hmm. another one is if i was asking you know hey how many men view themselves as an alpha Right. Because, you know, maybe I could get some crazy result like 75 percent of men think they're an alpha, which is obviously, you know, (laughs) somebody's in the top 50. So (laughs) so I could ask you a bunch of questions like, have you ever lost a fight? Have you ever been cheated on? Are you popular? Right. I could ask these sort of questions. And these are generally more negative result questions. Right. So, you know, if you've ever been cheated on. So you might be sitting there going, yeah, no, I got beat up pretty bad in high school. And uh, yeah, I've been cheated on a couple of times. And. Oh yeah, you know what? I'm really not an alpha. Jeez. Oh wow. I'm not right. And I, I've been put into a mindset that when we get to the question, do you think you're an alpha? So well, maybe I ask you the alpha question first, and then I ask the other questions. So the design could matter. Or I could flip it around. I could say things like, Do you work out? I just wouldn't ask that question because alpha is way too like stigmatized and emotional versus what you're going into now, where you're asking about specific things that I can just factually say yes or no to. Right. So that's kind of why it's a silly example, but how I framed it and how I structured this and the questions that go along with this can introduce bias. So as a real world example, Obama had sky high popularity rates, but the consensus has kind of been that Donald Trump was the response to Obama. And that would kind of make you think, well, if Donald Trump is the response to Obama, then was Obama popular or was it unpopular to dislike Obama? I would definitely say that that second one there, 
because he did win his second term. And there were a lot of people that were very surprised by that. There's not exactly the most, I would say there's now two camps. There are people that say that there were no scandals for the Obama presidency. And then there are people that call him Obama for his the drone massive use of drone strikes that may have created lots of civilian deaths abroad. Right. So as another example, in Oakland, there was a huge support for defunding the police, right? The defunding the police crowd went nuts. But in the same poll, they asked people, how many officers do you want? A majority wanted the same number of officers or more officers. Well, it's that opinion where you realize that if you reduce the number of officers that you have, you'll actually be less safe. But depending on how you ask the question, if you were to ask the question and say, well, would you like to have less officers and more social programs with social workers? They might have tried to put too much into the question where they want more social workers with police officers and they want the police officers to do less. But that's very difficult to get across in a poll. In fact, I would say that's probably where the big issue is in that poll, trying to figure out how many of one thing you want versus the other. Yeah, you're, you're bringing up some some really good points there. And what I want to do is just sort of broaden this out from the polls thing, because you, know, you don't want to beat this to death. People kind of know what a poll is at a certain base level. Well, you mentioned that there's demographics as well as a methodology. Right. And so when you hear about the polls, this is the other thing. These polls, these surveys, and the information that we collect in these, they're going to be framed by a writer. And when you, somebody says, oh, they framed it wrong, or you know, they, they, over there, they're, they're super biased. They frame everything this way. Oh, okay. I, I want to take this in a direction. So the framing tends to be where you have like a particular bent, like you want something out of the question sometimes. Like you'll get something in the mail and it's from like the Democrats, something rather caucus, and they want to know what's important to you. And they'll frame the questions by saying like, this such and such thing is taking away women's rights. How much is this important to you? And there's no way for you to say, well, I kind of fall into the, like, it's important, but not because of the reasons that you say it's important. Right. Yeah. I'm not concerned about women's rights. That's, that's not a response that, you know. Right. No, like, yeah, I think that women have the right to choose, but I also think that laws should be in place to help guide. And I also think there should be lots of education that happens around it. Does that make it less important to me? Well, no, but then I'll get the same one from like the Donald J. Trump camp where it's like, how important is it to you that China is taking over the country, blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah. And I'm just like, okay, well, it is important to me, but it's frustrating that there's no way to tune something up or down. It's just very important, somewhat important and not important. Well, in the Donald J. Trump one, it's um, very important. I'm a communist. That's the two options you get. <laughs> those, those polls got real famous real fast for those answers. <laughs> Who do you support? Donald Trump, the greatest president of your lifetime, or B, murderers. <laughs> like, okay. The other yeah. guy. You know, it's, oh, no, no, no. I think my favorite one was it said, like, some general Democrat or yeah. something like that. <laughs> Yeah, there was some there were some wild questions and answers in there, and it was just it got silly. And that that's a silly way to kind of say it, but that framing is going to come through because how you frame things is going to generate different responses, even if somebody is framing it in a way that is a legitimate take on it. So to give you an example of what I mean by that, so when gun control people talk about guns, what they'll usually use is a statistic called gun death. 
What this means is you're going to end up fatalities. Yeah. It, was there a gun that was used? It's going to give you around 40,000 a year. And when you hear the number 40,000, you're like, geez, that's like, that's 40,000. That's a lot. That's like, and then it, you know, it, it goes up the charts on how many people are dying. And they say, look, 40,000 a year, we're losing and we can do something about it. I'm going to be that terrible person. That's like, well, how many of those are from gang deaths? Correct. And about 60% of those are from suicide. Oh dear. And then of the remaining ones, it's around 80% that are from drugs and gang activity. What does that leave? What does that leave after the amount of suicides and gang activity? It depends on the year, but typically you're going to be looking at 10,000 or less. Wow. Right. So if in my story, I talk about, hey, there's only 3,000 gun murders a year. And then in your story, you go, well, there's 40,000 gun deaths, right? Those are two accurate numbers. But because you said gun death and I said murder, I've changed my definition slightly because for me, I support guns. I'm a big 2A guy. I'm going to be looking at, from my point of view, this is the number that matters. If gun murders were like 150,000 a year, I might go, all right, something's really not good here. You're right. But for like a gun control person saying gun death, right? They're going, well, 40,000 is too much. Right? They might say, well, you're misrepresenting it. You're not including people. Mm-hmm. Once again, this is how polls can lie. Right. And it doesn't even have to be a lie in terms of just... It just has to be a perception that you missed something in what they were defining. What is the control group for that specific poll? Right. So the, the control, what, what they're using to define it, what group they're comparing it to, those things all matter. Because, again, gang activity, if we're talking about taking guns off the street, are gangs going to be affected by that? No, they're not. Gangs most of the time are getting their firearms illegally. Right, the drug trade. Are Mexican cartels going to be paying attention to United States gun laws? No, they're not. Not at all. Well, they're not getting the guns from here. <laughs> they're definitely. Well, I mean, if it's Eric Holder, they definitely they're not are. But buying them directly from the gun shops. Right, and again, the suicide discussion is: Hey, we can prevent suicides, but how many of those suicides are you actually going to prevent? And are you going to be forcing everybody to buy back? Because you're saying, look, we're going to get rid of the suicide. That's what we want to do. So we're going to collect 400 or, you know, it's probably 500 million the way people are buying guns this year. <laughs> well, actually, it's technically last year, but... They're not giving them back, but sure. Right. Let's say we went and we collected every single one of those guns. You know, you may have saved a couple lives. You may have, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you've actually increased the number of people who are going to die because some people have guns and some people don't now. Right. And so what happens is, is if I present this information to you, so, so we just went over, we examined it from several different angles. We talked about this way we talked. This is something that you don't always have the luxury of doing because, you know, you're on the train, you know, in between work or you're, you're sitting down at lunch and you're just kind of scrolling the internet while you, know, you finish eating. You don't have the time to always sit there and go, well, maybe what about this? Oh, I didn't think about that. You don't always have the time to do that. You don't have time to fact check absolutely everything. Right. We all have things to do, right? For us, this is our main job, right? We, we, you know, we'd love for it to be our main job, but you know, both of us have families to to provide for and care for, and you know, and, and for me to buy things like guns that my wife definitely definitely wants me to have and is very supportive every time I bring it home and never rolls her eyes. So when you have that sort of constraint on your time, you don't always have the time to be checking every single individual stat or every single thing you have. Here's where it can become a bad thing for framing. I can start presenting things 
in a way that over time you will view certain things as okay because the language that I'm using is the language of this is an okay thing to think and then this is a not okay thing to think. The most famous one that I think is the conservatives pounce. This is like kind of a running joke on the right that every time something happens politically, conservatives are always pouncing. They're always jumping on it. They're always getting in there. You know, they, oh, they've seized on it. It's this like. Okay. My favorite of this that I saw recently has to be that when there is a Democrat in office, that's when the Republicans look at the deficit. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. I've since decided that we're always bipartisan to raise the debt ceiling. Right. It's funny how that debt ceiling always goes up while everybody's saying spending, you know, I mean, you know, the Democrats increased the national debt from what, like from 10, 12 trillion to 20 trillion during Obama. And then Trump gets in, does the same thing. And they're all of a sudden talking about how Trump's the big spender, you know, <laughs> but if you're reading stories about that and all the time you see fiscal conservatives raise debt ceiling, while on the other hand, you get a title saying Democrats avoid national crisis. Wow, those Democrats, they have my best interests at heart. Obviously, nothing's going on here. So even though the information that I gave you is kind of the same information in both, you're going to sort of get this opinion from one that like, oh my gosh, wow, those conser fiscal conservatives raised debt ceiling. Yeah, yeah, what a big joke. You know, just like we were joking. And then you read the other one, you go, oh my gosh, the Democrats saved us. Oh. It's about using inflammatory versus beneficial words and then choosing to give negative coverage to one group versus the other. And they know that they're getting mostly just eyes on the headlines because very few people will actually read the article. So what the, can they do? Correct. And then, you know, sometimes what you'll find is there'll be a 15 paragraph article. And then in paragraph nine, they're kind of like, there is this minor problem that may prove that we're completely wrong and it's actually a significant thing and you should probably take yep. this with a grain of salt. But we're still very right. My favorite one being that they supposedly have access to Donald J. Trump's tax returns, which they said never happened. And in the article, you're reading a super long article just to find that this might actually be wrong. They're not actually sure what's in them, but this is what their suspicion is. And then when you see the articles that say that they only paid $750, it's because he had like, whatever, millions and billions of dollars of losses that rolled over from one year to the next. And he prepaid taxes. Plot twist, that's just how the tax system works. People pay taxes ahead of time. If they make a certain amount of money, businesses do it all the time. They pay quarterly. It's a super normal practice. And then when you shockingly have massive losses over a year, you use that to offset your gains. You hear the same thing from YouTubers like Graham Stephan talking about how if you have stocks that have done well, you can sell them and offset some of the stocks that did poorly and offset your gains. So then you can kind of have like a net zero and then have a lot less that you owe on your taxes. People do things based off of the way the lawyers in Congress wrote them. And they take advantage of those taxes too. We just don't hear about it because it's less exciting to talk about how each person in Senate makes about $160,000 a year. It's very, very true. The other thing you'll find too is they'll get somebody there and that person will be saying something like, they're as a Republican or as a Democrat. And that Republican or Democrat is not a Republican or Democrat, right? They're not somebody that accurately represents the majority opinion. I mean, the, the best example is Jennifer Rubin. Like, I don't think she's said one pro 
conservative thing in the last four years because she really hates Donald Trump. But they bring her on and they go, Jennifer Rubin, Republican. And everyone goes, oh, see, the Republican agrees. So you have Jennifer Rubin, Hannity and Combs, right? It was really Hannity and this other guy's there too. That was the show. That was really the show on Fox. But because it's like, hey, we've got Hannity and we've got a we've got a Democrat, right? So there's there's two sides here. And it was really just they had Combs talk to some Republicans who just yell at him, you know, people like you. And he had Combs sort of sit there and be like, Yeah, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah, the same thing happens on the view where they're like, We've got Megan McCain here. And then they spend like most of the time just like destroying them or like there was a Baltimore House hopeful, Kimberly Clasic, who went on The View, and she tried to bring some of her perspective, and she was basically just laughed at by time. those three people. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? They're supposed to be, like, genuine and open. Like, here's a smart, prominent woman here to offer what she has to say, and you guys won't even listen to her. In fact, like blatantly disrespectful. But this is what you can expect if you're going to have just one person from one side and three people from the other side. You'll see the same thing at Senate hearings where you have one person that's pro this and three people who's anti that. And you get to the end of it as a regular person, just like listening on the side where you're doing actual work that you're paid to do. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, is this person right? or wrong, but there's these three other people that are just laying it down. They could be right, they could be wrong, but we're still having all of this bias brought in and thrown at our faces. Right, and again, people have bias. It's when people can recognize that they have bias and understand where they are and be honest about it, that's fine. So why do Republicans not have as much problem with MSNBC as they do CNN? It's because MSNBC specifically says we're a left-wing news outlet. It's way better to just be super upfront about your bias rather than having CNN say, well, we have the best news on the planet and all they do is post things that the internet actually can say is very biased, but they won't admit to their bias. CNN, to most Republicans, will, and to a lot of liberals as well, will act like we are the exact middle of the country. This is the middle. We're there. If you had to draw a line that was in the middle, we would be the line. We we are the line. We are the line of the middle. And if you don't think so, screw you, buddy. That's kind of their attitude that they take with you. And then you listen to those phone calls that uh, Project Veritas re released. And you're just like, these guys are activists, right? That's why you have a lot of Republicans going, CNN sucks. And nobody's really chanting MSNBC sucks, besides the fact it's harder to chant. So <laughs> Too long. Right. So you have different framing that can really affect these sort of things. Like people will talk about the, the statistics about we want to reform the police and we want to allow individuals to sue the police. And it's 62% overall. They say we want to allow individuals to sue the police. Now, here's a question that you probably didn't think of when you heard that stat is, do you actually think that 40% of Americans think you shouldn't be able to sue the police? No. Right? No, it's, because what, what happens is this poll was done after the Breonna Taylor shooting. And we were starting to talk about qualified immunity. Are we talking about qualified immunity? Are we talking about just suing? Because qualified immunity doesn't mean you can't sue. So qualified immunity being? Qualified immunity is that if an officer is acting within the scope of their job, they can't be sued personally. However, you can still sue the department. You can still sue the, the town, right? Breonna Taylor's family settled a $12 million lawsuit with the city. 
Now, they can't file that suit against the individual officers. That's what qualified mm-hmm. immunity is. However, a lot of people have been talking about, hey, maybe it's too broad. You know, that qualified is just so broad. It really almost extends to everything. Okay, bad joke, but I bet that $12 million was taxable. <laughs> it, probably, it probably was, too. So when you're seeing that study, you might say, oh, my gosh, 40% of Americans think you shouldn't be able to sue the police? No, it's probably 40% of Americans are thinking about, no, I'm anti what you want to do. So they answer the question, no, you can't sue the police. Emotionally. Right. They answer it. in. So you have to think about that when you're reading these things. And, you know, I think that's just kind of an important thing that we need to be able to realize to have sort of a quick frame of reference when we're going over these things. Because we can read things and we can go, oh, my gosh, what happened? I, th- I think the best joke I saw once was like when you're reading the Internet, it'll be like, oh, what a cute kitten. The president ate a baby? Oh, I'm so glad she got married. Right? You can- oh, well, well, then there's like the Netflix movie where it shows like 12-year-olds twerking Cuties. and people freaking out. And then there was like a Babylon Bee in response. They were like, Netflix releases film just shooting puppies to show how evil shooting puppies is. Right. And like Babylon Bee is satire. But it was just like, this is hilarious because this is what society has come to. It's like, wow, check out this art piece that we made showing off how bad things are bad. Right. Well, because it was the director's thing was, well, the reason I used uh, 12 year olds is because I wanted to show that um, using 12 year olds was bad. But then you did the very single thing that you said was bad. And what's funny is I, I never watched the film, but I read people's takes on what happened. And you have to get to the end of the film for you to see that like these kids go back to their family life and it's like a good thing. But who's going to really stick around? Like it's Netflix. Like you didn't pay for the film and sit to watch the whole thing. You watched it if you wanted to or stopped partway through. Right. Well, you know, (laughs) so I think kind of a more fun thing to kind of do right now is just throw some examples of bad stats and framing. This really wouldn't be fun if, at least for us, we didn't get to make fun of people. Of course not. Because remember, we are always right. And my thoughts of are 100% course. correct always. Right. And and so, mm-hmm. you know, you get to listen to us make fun of other people because we'll never be this wrong. This was ever. a joke. <laughs> yeah, I should probably put that in there since they do fact checks. What was it? USA Today actually tasked somebody to make sure the Babylon Bee was satire. Oh, dear. That must have been like an overly paid position. It really was. I remember at least the Babylon Bee was making fun of them for something like that. So, so a good example, I got two right off the bat is just... There was a study that came out saying, if you're a heavy French fry eater, you will double your risk of death. So that was a study that came out and people were like, oh my gosh, if I, you mean if I eat French fries a lot? Oh my gosh. So here's what it is. In the actual study, you would have to eat fried potatoes three times a week or more to just qualify for this doubling the risk. Hashtag supersize me. Right. And the original risk was 1% and went up to 2%. Seriously? Right. And so this is called relative This is the doubling. Right. That's the doubling because two is double one. Whoa. But if you just heard double, you'd go, oh my gosh, double my risk. That's, that's doubling is more than one. And you know, huge. Right. And it was for people at the age of 65. It basically meant that if that's the age of 65, that's way older, you could have right. Instead of one out of every hundred guy dying, you could have two out of every hundred guys. And to be honest, you would have to be doing this fried potato thing every week, like every single week. Impressive. Right. So you would, so again, the heavy French fry eater, 
you, when you hear that, you go, oh, I like French fries. I eat those. Oh, double my risk of death. You know, so we make decisions with relative risk, right? So four in one billion is quadruple my risk of one in a billion, but four in one billion is not stopping me. So you always want to make sure you're asking what the risk is increasing or decreasing from because somebody could say, hey, I stopped eating French fried potatoes. Yeah, I'm down to 1% from two, right? You could, <laughs> there was a famous one from Colgate. They claimed that 80% of dentists recommended the brand, right? So in the UK, they, they actually uh, banned this slogan. And the reason for it is they sent out surveys. You could choose several brands of toothbrushes. So the dentist would just, you know, pick several brands. One of them would be Colgate. So 80% of dentists said Colgate is amongst my brand that I recommend. <laughs> Wasn't it higher in the United States? I thought it was like 99% or something, something ridiculously high. Yeah, because I think even my own dentist gives me Colgate when I go, mm -hmm. you know, the free toothbrush you get. But when you're reading this, if you were just reading that, you go, oh, so Colgate's good. And you'd have in the back of your head. So the next time you're in the store, you go, oh, I remember reading about Colgate and you'd pick it up. And then you just buy it because you see it and you know you like it and you miss like all the other ones because you just don't recognize the brand. Right. And now they have market capture. You just pick up Colgate. So when you don't have Colgate, you'll go somewhere else and get a Colgate because you go 80% dense is recommended. Why would I get anything else? Because we're all brainwashed. Exactly. We're just telling you exactly how you have no control over your fate. We're all determinists now. Another funny one that's more kind of short was the Jeffrey Tubin quote from Brian Stelter. Tubin was on a work call. And he exposed himself to his work colleagues and performed an act. Oh, so cringy. Yeah, I know. Stelter was like tweeting about how, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he was tweeting about how it was like unfortunate that it happened at this time because we really needed him. So bizarre. <laughs> you know, you're going, what were you talking about? <laughs> this is the same guy that was screaming, believe women th throughout Brian Kavanaugh, you know? <laughs> And now Stelter's defense was, well, I wasn't defending him. I was just saying that this was a huge loss, right? So is Stelter framing it in a certain way, right? So you can see an argument over how somebody was framing it because maybe Stelter really meant it going, oh my gosh, this was a guy who was really crucial for us in our fight against the Trump administration. So maybe he really meant it that way, but obviously didn't come off right. So do you have any favorites you'd like to share with the class? Share with the class. Well... 2% of rape allegations are false. Actually, it's 2 to 10%, and it's an estimated based on the police filings. Does that mean that only 30% of rape allegations are true because that's the conviction rate? It's very interesting. 2% of rape allegations are false. Like, who is going out there just lying about being raped? Like, this just is very sad. I actually know somebody who did. They never filed a police report, so they're not actually in this. So when somebody says this, and this is not supposed to be some sort of dig as in like, you know, women are lying or anything like that. The point is, it's 2% of rape allegations filed to the police are proven to be false. Proven. Right. Because here's the thing. Police deal in prosecutable and non-prosecutable. So if you show up at the police and you say, hey, I was walking down the street and some guy grabbed me. Police are going to go, dang. I will right, we'll send a squad car. Right, because there's nothing they can do there. They're, they're not going to spend resources attempting to find a guy in the United States of America. Not, it's not a good use of their time, which is just an, you know, an unfortunate reality based on the fact they don't have unlimited funding. And that 2%, they find between 2 and 10% because it's based on 
those police filings, what the police are getting in terms of allegations that they then find out to be false. Because those same people that are saying that 2% of rape allegations are false, so really it's not the female, she's fine, believe all women, do this. However, you could turn that all the way around and go, well, only one out of every three rape allegations are true. If I was sitting here and I said, look, hey, look, only 30% of rape allegations are true because that's the conviction rate. That means that two out of every three guys that's accused of rape, that's a bad accusation. If I made that argument, I would be crucified for making that argument. They would be talking about how like, the conviction rate does not equal this. this is, you know, justice, you have to prove it. And just because you can't prove it, he said, she said, there's it's obviously going to be more than 30%. You know, that 30% and they'd be correct. Obviously, there are people that get away with it because there's no evidence to convict them. Obviously. It happens all the time because, you know, the he said, she said cases, it just ends. If you can't prosecute, then you can't prove that it's false. But wrapping that up, you know, there are lots of ways where you can kind of pull the wool over people's eyes and make them believe something that is true-ish to a point where becoming a French fry eater, your chance of dying going from one to 2% to having calling it double or whether you're going to dentists and saying, hey, here's a list of options, and then just like smiling gleefully as you see that they selected Colgate as one of their many ones and then throwing on an ad and just slapping it down, people do put things together in a way that makes it so that you can't necessarily believe what you are seeing at face value without additional research. Right. You know, a great example of that is the big to-do when the Georgia bill came out on abortion. There was a huge uproar from the pro-choice community saying this bill will make it so that women are going to get life imprisonment. If you read that, you would go, they're making women get life imprisonment for this? And you're sitting there thinking about, oh my gosh, what about women who are, are poor and they can't afford it? Or maybe they're a rape victim. You know, you're sitting there going, oh my God, this is too cruel, right? You're thinking about that in your head. Now, those articles did not mention whatsoever that the bill did not contain the language. And in Georgia, it was already established that you cannot sue women for it. Strange. Right. So there was an already established law, which is why you don't have to put it in the bill. Because when you would change law, it either affects or doesn't affect the rest of the law. You don't have to rewrite the entire legal statute for the state every time you do a bill. But the reason that you would frame it that way, if you're a pro-choice pushing agenda, you would frame it in that way in order to get people to go, this is just, this is beyond the pale. Emotional reaction. An emotional reaction so that the person reading it doesn't go and ask more questions. And when somebody attempts to argue back for the bill, the person's not going to listen because you've already set it up as this person is defending women being thrown in jail. That's what, right? The old men chucking women around right into prison and, and into the ditch. Right, They wanted that in your head. You would see red. And I had friends who I saw them talk about the bill. And then somebody would say, hey, the bill doesn't say that. Here's this. They put sources. And the person would just go, yeah, well, it's just another example of men controlling women. And it's like they didn't respond to the person at all. The person was in an emotional state and they weren't able to see what the person was saying because they had already been pushed into accept this viewpoint from this direction and not that viewpoint, because that viewpoint's trying to do this. You don't know it, because it, it's kind of like a neat trick, right? Because I'm sitting here saying they're pushing an agenda. What they were doing is going, no, 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 they're going to tell you I am, but it's them. They're pulling that trick on you. When you're just seeing red, what else are you supposed to do? Right, well, it's the blue no matter who, right? 
And by red, I just meant like if you're a bull and somebody just pulls the red thing over your eyes and you just get inflamed and then you can't see anything else. Right. And so that's because when you do that, you know, that's an example of lying. But is the 2% of rape allegations false a lie? It's not a lie. No, it just depends what you're using for the definition. Right. And how you're applying it. So I think we want to wrap this up with just, you know, we've had, we've had some fun smashing people around and for things we think are dumb. It's a good time. It's always fun to just, you know, say we're smarter than you. You know, I enjoy it. <laughs> so what exactly should we do? Because we're looking for a specific way here that those of us who don't do politics full time in day in, day out can sort of apply to a story within a few seconds and get it going. You can sort of sift that out easily if you have no political training. And I, I think the general formula is you want to ask, average, and apply. So it's a AAA, which is the vehicle company. So if you're ever stuck, AAA will come and save you. See? Bam. They are not sponsoring us. So <laughs> the first one is ask, right? So what you want to do is generally a spun story is going to include specific details that support your cause, but not general considerations that might change it. What I mean by this is, so when Bernie Sanders talks about how his plan is going to cut costs, right? Medicare for all is going to cut costs. The guy who ran that study goes, well, because they're reducing reimbursement rates by 40%. So the stories that are the big progressive guys are going to just go, see, reducing costs. We reduced costs. Bam. Right? So you want to ask right away, okay, how is it going to cut costs? How? How is something going to achieve this? Oh, oh my gosh, I love that. How are you going to do that? If you can't find how they're going to do that, now you know what to look for. Now you know what to research. This is why people ask for the plan. What is the plan? Right. When you're asking what is the plan, you are saying, how was this going to occur? Because it's not magic. Nobody wants the fairy godmother to come and make it so. Exactly. And so that's the first one because you can narrow the story down because you can cut out a lot of the fluff and the writing and the, you know, the English master's degrees that these guys have that they use to make their story readable. So before you commit to something, you can go, how And if you don't know, then that's the time to educate yourself. Or it's time to admit that, hey, I'm going to let that other guy tell me something that I might not know. So now your conversation is going to improve. So what you're going to see as the answer to that question that we just asked, right? How is it going to reduce costs? The answer from a lot of the left wing was, well, we're going to be cutting out the administration, middleman, the drug prices being skyrocketed, right? So that, that was their answer. Let me also point out, you're never going to run into a situation where you cut out administration and the middlemen. They are pretty much permanent in the system. Right. But they were going to reduce it. They were, they were going to reduce that down. It was going to be streamlined, so a lot of that would get cut out. Now, right-wingers were pointing out, like, look, people are already rejecting Medicare and because of the reimbursement rates. So slashing another 40% is probably not a good solution. Right. So they're saying that's probably not a good solution. So this is where your average comes in. You want to average common points across articles. And what do you mean by that? Meaning that both sides have conceded that according to this study, it's going to reduce costs. And now that you've asked why, you know, I've asked why, and you get the answers back. Right wing say this, left wing say this. You can find the common points between the two of them that they both sort of agree on. And that's where you're going to find your answer on what is a thing that is probably true. And the interpretation is going to be the disagreement points, right? So right-wingers are not saying, oh, well, it's not going to cut costs. They're saying it is going to cut costs, but the way you're cutting costs is going to absolutely destroy the healthcare industry and you're going to wreck what this country does. 
So the best way to view it is to look for where they disagree to find how to interpret where the how comes into play. It's to see what they disagree on. Right. And that's a much quicker way of figuring out whether or not is this a biased article or not, or is this including things that might be important? So if an article only says it's going to reduce costs, this is perfect. We've obviously, we've solved healthcare. Well, obviously that's not going to be accurate. You're going to need to look for something that shows the disagreements for that particular policy. And you're going to want to compare those. And obviously it's not going to include everything, but again, it's easier for somebody to just pick up, hey, I get my left-wing news from this site and I get my right-wing news from this site. And when I see two stories on something, I can find the two things that they all agree on. And then there's the difference. Okay, that's the argument right there. In 10, 15 minutes, you're able to figure out this is the argument. This is what I need to decide. And then the last thing is apply. And apply is not so much about the stats itself or anything like that. It's about the assumptions and the conclusions that you draw from whatever you're reading. Apply it to yourself. Is abortion actually a debate between murderers and sexists? Is it really true that all cops are bad or back the blue no matter what? You know, if you're finding yourself towards this, like earlier, where we were reading that 2% and they were saying, hey, believe all women because it's only 2% and you're going, hmm, do I really think that nobody lies, that nobody makes things up? No, I don't really think that. You know, that, that that seems a little far for me there, right? You want to apply the assumption that you're making to yourself. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. <laughs> it is. definitely Because if you're saying, hey, no, people don't make stuff up. It's like, well, someone made up Star Wars. So <laughs> people can make it up. <laughs> so you want to try and flip the story around in your head. Try to take the story and flip it so that it would substitute somebody in. Is it now a fair story? Is it something that you would feel, hey, that's a good critique? Because you can now say, hmm, you know, hey, I just read a whole story and it's about how Republicans suck. And, you know, I think they do suck. But there's not a single quote from a Republican in here. That's odd. Well, okay, so maybe I need to wait and see what's going on here. This is called the BS meter. (laughs) Exactly. You just need to be able to know. Um, I stole that right from Janine Driver, who like worked for the FBI. But like, you just need to know. You need to have this thought in your head or you ask, like we were saying at the beginning, Ask, ask the question, ask how, ask how this policy will work. And if something is missing, say, why is that missing? Does this really seem like where I should be getting news from? Or should I find something that says the opposite? Or just to make sure that it can't be interpreted like the way that I'm reading it, or it can be, but you have to ask those questions. If something seems off, it probably is. And you have to account for yourself. If you are a biased person, and we all are, you have to look for things that are going to trouble you. You have to look for things that show off your own bias so you can say, ah, that is what I believe, but I could be wrong about my perception based off of my own bias. And that kind of goes into the apply that you're talking about. So we have the ask where we go and we find all of the questions for how something works. We have the average where we try to find the middle ground and then we have to apply it to ourselves and figure out where we fall into it and ask those questions of ourselves. Right, because again, if what you've come to a conclusion about doesn't match what the people who are on whatever side you're against believe, then that's something to investigate, not just assume they're wrong. So if somebody says, oh, well, you know, hey, (laughs) pro-life people are just pro-birth. And then all the pro-lifers are going, that's really not true. And they start saying stuff. That's not the time to just go, 
And there they go again, defending the fact that they hate people. You know, <laughs> imagine if somebody said something about, like that to you, like, well, you know, as a leftist, uh, since you don't care for human life, I was thinking, you know, you'd be going, wait, wait, wait a minute, hold on a second. I, I can't, you know, you would, so you can kind of start doing those little flips in your head and go, oh, you know, maybe, and then apply it to the guy in general, right? Is this a generally even-handed, fair guy that you enjoy being with? Well, then you can watch people do this. We're like, yeah, I used to really enjoy that guy, but then he said something like taxes should be lower for economic improvement. And that's just when I realized I had to move out of the state. Like, that's not a realistic thing, right? You might just say, oh, you know, well, he's a guy, he, he invests in things, he owns a business. You know, he's a guy who's kind of in that world. He might know something I don't. Maybe I should go over there and see and test myself. You know, I'm, I'm going to make an argument and, oh, geez, he had way more points than I was. You know what? I need to go read more on this. Yeah, that's what I think people should really take away from this is that if they miss something or if they don't understand they need to talk to more people that are in that type of predicament, that work that type of job. And then they need to go read a bunch of books because there is so much written by authors that have words to say about the things that you want to know more about. And you're going to get a lot more to read and a lot more to understand rather than just sitting in your own head and stewing with your, in your own thoughts. And just from our own personal experience, the amount of right-wingers that saw our title, Blue State Conversations, and then went, you liberals. <laughs> we could do a whole episode just on we that. We could. And I, some of the stuff that was being fired at me was like, I, I, somebody called me a baby killer. And I'm you know. <laughs> You're like sitting here like, who do you think I am? Yeah, I'm going, you know, hey, we're pro-life, buddy. You can calm They're down like, now. They're like, what? No. <laughs> oh, you know. We believe this about you. Right. Because they just saw Blue State. You know, you can just apply that there. So we've talked about polls today. We've talked about just things to keep in mind when you see these stats and polls and data points coming at you from all these different sides and points of view. And just what we're hoping is you've listened to this and you can kind of go home knowing, hey, I know where to start when I see something and I'm going, oh, this is terrible or that can't be true. Or maybe this, you now kind of know how to approach it in a streamlined way that doesn't require you to have several degrees and eight hours in your day to sit down and look into this one thing when you've got kids, when you've got a party on the weekend or you're exhausted from a double, you're able to hear this and go, now I know what to do. So hopefully you have been able to learn one or two things that are going to take your information consumption and make it productive and useful going forward. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow. 